quick warning before we begin, our episodes are made for adult ears, so do expect to hear some swear words and occasionally some adult themes. Oh, one more thing while we're at the warnings, a note on sound quality. These episodes have been produced by us in isolation. They're not made in our usual studio, so they don't sound as slick. But bear with us. I promise you the content is worth waiting around for. Hey, Daisy, can we make some podcasts? Yeah, we've got so much time on our hands. Sounds good to me. Every day we could bring a good and a bad news item, what's keeping us going, what's making us blue, and then we'll try and get as many guests as we can. Stunning. Let's do it. (laughs) I'm Daisy Grant, and you're listening to Harness, Isolation Diaries. Today we've slightly changed the structure of our episode. We're not going to include voice notes from our listeners or our good news and bad news segment, but go straight into our guest story today. Our guest today is our dear friend, Nathan Whitebrook. Nathan is an artist, a writer and a part-time bartender. He was actually due to run the Brighton Marathon this weekend, which is pretty unbelievable considering what you're about to hear. Our WhatsApp group with Nathan is called Nathan Help Us, which pretty much sums up what kind of a guy he is. Always willing to help. Good to the bone. We played Nathan's voice note in our last episode and, like us, you may have picked up on him saying that he had infinite number of days left in him before he cracked over COVID-19. That made us think. Nathan has actually experienced a lockdown of sorts before. We wondered whether that experience had prepared him for what is happening now and if he had any advice to share. At age 22, after having dizzy spells and heart palpitations, Nathan was diagnosed with an AV block, which is a blockage in the atrium of your heart. He had an urgent pacemaker inserted into his heart. Nine months later, complications from that procedure resulted in him facing death and spending over two months in hospital. An MRI uncovered he'd actually been misdiagnosed. What he had was dilated cardiomyopathy, which is an enlargement of the heart. Nathan explains precisely what the complications were that led to this stint in hospital, but please keep in mind as you listen that he's extremely humble and has a tendency to downplay the things that have happened to him. No one spends two months in hospital without serious, serious cause, particularly at age 22. Some of the things he doesn't mention about his time in hospital was that he had a bout of pneumonia, which resulted in a collapsed lung, a blood clot behind the heart, which made his arm swell and his skin split, and a pulmonary embolism. This is all in addition to the general recovery from a life-threatening infection, which included having to learn to walk again because of the muscle deterioration his legs had undergone from being bedridden. Again, all at age 22. Thank you for sharing your story with us, Nathan. We love you. We love you and we're so proud of you. Here he is. So how do you start the story? Where does the story start for you? The story for me probably starts back in, well, it starts in in 2017 when I was first diagnosed with AV block at the time. The, The diagnosis was later changed and I was given my first pacemaker, which was this huge shock, but I kind of, as with many things, took it in my stride. And then it wasn't until about nine months later when things sort of went wrong uh, and there was something wrong with the device. There'd been some bacteria on it. One of the cords got twisted or something. Um, it's, a little, it's a little bit hazy now, but basically I 
woke up one morning in Geneva where I'd been visiting. I don't even know how I got there. <laughs> and I don't even know how I got there. <laughs> one of our um, crazy nights, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it had actually been quite a crazy night before. And that's why I woke up and I was like, oh, I have the worst hangover ever. <laughs> and I immediately uh, went to the the tap in the kitchen of this like student apartment building that, that I was staying in with my brother and just started like drinking from the tap. <laughs> um, but anyway, it, it, uh, it kind of, I managed to get home and then I spent a few days uh, back at home before realizing that I was like seriously ill. And uh, home is and London, went, just to clarify. Home is London. Yeah. Yeah. Back, back to London. Um, uh, which was, which I didn't even know if I was going to be able to make it home at first. Like, and it was quite funny at first. Everyone was laughing at, at this ridiculous hangover. But uh, yeah, and I how ridiculous was it? What were you? What were your symptoms? I I felt incredibly cold and was just really drowsy. Uh, I did also have a, a sick feeling in my stomach, but I put I definitely put that down to the hangover. But the other the other things, I was like, I, I thought I'd been drugged or something. Mm. Um, it later transpired that what had happened was I had sepsis and in, in, in what, in the crazy state I was in, I managed to get back to London and, and then spent about two or three days in bed without really going anywhere or moving. And sepsis is an infection of the blood and it's, it attacks all your organs and, and tissues in your body. So you just get gradually weaker and weaker, uh, until your organs start to fail. On the second or third day, I, I was in a mess and um, I don't remember if I called my parents or they called me, but they were like, they both of them were like, go to hospital. Luckily, my housemate was home, uh, Jack, who you both also know. <laughs> and he uh, went into hospital with me in an Uber. On the second or third night in intensive care, they, they, they meant to put a catheter in for me, but this... Uh, elderly nurse he came in and saw these younger nurses who were all women starting to try and give me a catheter and he came in and he must have been the senior on the, on the team that day and then he came in and was was like what are you what are you guys doing like <laughs> he doesn't need a catheter he's a he's a young fit man he doesn't need to go through that trauma as well as everything else <laughs> i kind of wish i did have a catheter now <laughs> but um it was this, it was the middle of the night one night and I had to, I had to pee. So I, I sat up in bed, which took all the effort I had. And then I started to get uh, rigors, which is the shaking, the, un the uncontrollable shaking you get from sepsis, from any sort of fever. And it's quite, it's quite frightening when, because when you just sort of lose control of your body. And until that moment, I kind of managed to sort of get into this mental state whenever the rigors happened, because I knew that it was the bacteria tricking my body into thinking it was cold. So I'd tell myself like, I'm not actually cold. I'm not actually cold. I'm just, it's just, it's just the bacteria that's inf infected me. That sort of mental state helped me ride it out because they would normally last about half an hour. But this was like, like at 3 a.m. and I really needed to pee. And I think my body just went into this state of panic. And it was also the crucial day for my condition. Like it was, I was at the worst condition that I was in was that, that night. And yeah, I just started to uncontrollably shake and my heart rate skyrocketed to just under 200 beats a minute. And 
yeah, I, I, I very quickly had a team of people around me getting ready to like defibrillate. And I was, I was definitely like panicking quite a lot. What kind of happened was they put a, a breathing machine on me and it dries your mouth out so bad. And they were like, they had these little popsicle sticks with foam, like a sponge on the end and they'd put water on it. And you weren't really meant to have any water because it could make you choke, but they would occasionally like, I, did, I, would, I was just begging for water. And they were, I was just panicking. It was, it was mayhem. And they were, they were like going to try and stop my pacemaker, going to try and restart my heart. They were getting all these plans ready. And I kind of had this moment where I took back control of my body. Like anyone who has had anything ridiculously life-threatening, like medically happened to them. Um, I think there's a huge loss of feeling of like control and, and will over your life and your, your body that, that happens. And it can be quite defeating. The, the fact is, is that like sometimes things happen in our bodies that we just can't control. And, and that's, that's nature. That's, that's life. That's how fragile it is. Uh, but I, I, I think an experience, the experience like I had really taught me that the capacity for like individual will your your will matters so much because i was going into cardiac arrest and i managed to sort of where i was laid down look up in the, in the left of my periphery and see this the monitor with my heart rate and my vitals and everything and i saw how high my my heart rate was and they all they were trying to do all this team of people were trying to bring my heart rate down and because i was panicking i was breathing so quickly and I, I kind of just had this moment where I was like, I need to calm down. I need to take control of this situation in whatever way I can. So I started to just focus on nothing else but my breathing. And I tried to slow down my breathing uh, as much as I could. Forget about this like uncontrollable thirst I had for water. And I remember one of the doctors being like, his, his heart rate's going down, his heart rate's going down. What? What's happening? What was someone doing something? And they were all sort of looking around, and one of the nurses looked down at me and he was like, Oh, he's he's breathing. It's he's he's breathing. And yeah, they kind of had everything ready to go in case it went wrong, but they just sort of stood there with me and kept me breathing. And gradually I sort of watched my heart rate go down like one or two beats at a time, breath by breath, until until it was back to a reasonable rate that was where it was most touch and go <laughs> did you get the sense that you could die in that moment uh or was there too much going on to process that i think this is the thing is is i don't think i ever did feel that way i don't think i ever felt like i was going to die it was only afterwards that i, yeah. I had this feeling of like fear and sadness for myself that like that i was close to dying um I, but at the time, I think all all I could really think of, all 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 that all there was was this panic. And if anything, that taught it really taught me that that is one way to die is to panic. Keeping a a rational and level head, even when your body is completely failing, is is it's so unbelievable that you just doing the most basic human thing, which is to breathe you know the most basic instinct that we have that you took that and that saved you like that's just i don't know how yeah. your mind knew to do that no i, I think yeah this, this is it i think i think it's it is this instinctual yeah i i think 
there, there is such a capacity to, to do those those basic things to just remain calm um i know it sounds kind of mystic and spiritual but like that connection to your breath and it is your life force and and i think it really solidified for me that whole experience just how important um keeping a level head and like just listening to your body it's just so important but of course that was only the beginning of your journey right yeah yeah so at that point there hadn't really been any mention of a long stay in hospital it had just it had just been let's save this kid's life <laughs> and then and you were um, a kid i mean how old were you i was well i was 22 um mm. it was, the whole thing was just very unexpected and, and i had i hadn't yet been told how long my stay in hospital was going to be and I was diagnosed with endocarditis, which is an infection of the inside of the heart, which had caused the sepsis. And they had to take the pacemaker out that I had uh, on my left side. For that, I was transferred to another hospital. It was then in that process that they talked about me being in hospital for maybe a month or so. And as, as weeks went by, well, really before the end of the second week, it was like, oh, you're going to be in hospital for at least two months. Yeah, that was sort of when it began. I got transferred to the second hospital and then it was time to stick it out. <laughs> and how had you got the infection on the inside of your heart? How does that happen? And does that relate to your pacemaker? Basically, it was basically just unlucky. They, they, tell, you, they tell you that there's like a 5% chance of infection <laughs> with, the, with the operation and uh, it's it's really just to do with the how sterile the the surgical environment is i think it's really yeah it's really just down to bad luck i don't i don't really blame any of the doctors or nurses who cut me open and and stuff for for putting the bacteria on the device but that's how the inside of my heart got infected there must have been something living on the device some bacteria that's got in it, it never it was never really fully clarified something happened inside my heart there was some staph bacteria on the device and that infected they created a colony inside my heart and and then they they moved out to the bloodstream they they, they set a base in my heart and then they're like let's go and fuck up the rest of his body <laughs> so it's just incredibly unlucky yeah it doesn't really happen and i was incredibly lucky to be a 22 year old because well that that kind of infection is life or death and and it's sepsis if you weren't is, young and fit and healthy you might have yeah not sepsis that mainly kills the elderly or like mm. infants it was both parts very unlucky to have the infection but but very lucky to be a, a young and fit person so yeah. you were in hospital then for two months yeah just a little over eight weeks i was in hospital and, and was that it one hospital what you were in some Barts for two months in total or was that including the little time in the other one as well yeah i was in i was in saint Barts in london for the eight weeks and then there yeah. was a little bit of time spent at royal which is where i was uh, admitted in, in from a and e and how do you mentally cope with being in a, a one room one bed i mean daisy and i both visited you thank you so much for visiting me <laughs> because like questions like how did i cope um I, I think the way this all sort of ties in with our current situation is 
is is connection. I think I think that situations like this where you are isolated, they they make people appreciate the connections they have with other people so much more, and you you seek them out and and people, and I I think just I think just being there for people and reaching out to them and it's just so important. Like that's how people get through these times. We've got to think about each other and we've got to we've got to. Uh, you know it's 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 thanks to friends like you and my family coming and visiting me that 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 whole situation was was manageable mentally for me yeah if i'd been on my own i think i think i still would have i think i still would have gotten through it but if, i think it would have been a far more um traumatic experience to have, have not it probably would have affected you differently afterwards as well because you were it was mm. it was hard for you i don't you don't have to go into this but i know it was hard for you to kind of wrap your head around it afterwards like you were reflecting so much and you had so many different kind of crises in your mind and it lasted quite a long time that kind of trying to calculate it and get come to terms with it all and I feel like maybe it would have been even harder to cope with had yeah. it been you have the support that you did yeah that's the thing is the kind of the kind of trauma that happens in that experience you only get through it if you have help and i had help and i think that's why yeah in, in situations like the current lockdown it's people with mental health issues or just for any human being we we need we need connection you know we need to yeah we need to look out for each other that's the main way i got through the eight weeks was was having good people around me yeah i don't want to put words in your mouth but mm -hmm. i think it makes perfect sense that you had a period of time afterwards which was very confronting because I imagine that whilst you're going, even though that's a long time, eight weeks, there's a certain amount of adrenaline and it's an unusual thing that you're going through. You're, you're taking it a day at a time and yeah. uh, there's a novelty to it. But when you return to life, you know, you then start to grieve what's happened to you and that it's not really usual for a 22 year old to face death and it's like i've been through this big thing and you all just got to carry on with your life as normal and like to just slot back into the world is pretty hard i imagine absolutely and i i, I think there was this determination and almost a slight bit of, of resignation to the situation i was in when i was in it i just i just needed to get through it and um I found all sorts of different <laughs> distractions and and I in a in a way I think the the simplicity of the situation as well of not being able to go anywhere and having the same ritual the same environment there was this safety around 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 it even though it was this sudden change to my life I just I had this one place that I was going to be for 8 weeks and I was like oh, I can yeah, it wasn't, it, I didn't I don't even think I had that mind frame of like in eight weeks, it's over because I knew having just gone through what I'd just gone through that that could change at any time. And I did, I had like an, an, a quite an immense feeling of fear and, and insecurity when I left hospital because one, I'd been hooked up to machines and looked after for <laughs> two months. And then suddenly I was just back, you know, in the open, in the wild. That would feel quite vulnerable, you know, on just a physical level. Yeah, it was, it was, I was very, um, I was I was almost very hyper aware of, of everything that was happening in my body. I, before I left hospital, I had surgery as well. So it was, I was recovering from that outside of hospital. And I actually, I went back through my journal from the time last night and 
the the night before I knew that I was going to leave St. Bart's, I I was in two minds about the whole thing. I was very um, apprehensive about the life I was returning to. There was a whole new readjustment process. The first one had sort of been thrust upon me and I just had to go with it. The second one, I really had to think about what kind of decisions I was going to make to get my life back on track. The whole experience had changed me, had changed the way I wanted uh, to live. And it really influenced, it's, it's influenced every decision I've made since, since it happened. It's, in it's what way? Well, one thing I started to do while I was in hospital was make plans, things that I'd wanted to do for a long time that I hadn't yet done. And when I left hospital, it was like, I had to do these things now because I know, I know having been through this experience now, how important they are to me. Mm. And that changed the way I, I lived my life. And like I say, there weren't plans like, you know, setting things in the calendar. There were plans like, uh, experiences I wanted to have like I remember I, I just wanted to like cycle more often or like you weren't like I need to have that gangbang in Acapulco you were like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I need to see a ping pong show in Thailand before I <laughs> <laughs> no uh, no it wasn't like that it was it was more I wanted to get an ear piercing like that and you like did that. it I did I did Thanks. <laughs> um, I wanted to, yeah, cycle more. I wanted to uh, fall in love again. Like, I, like just all these, all these things that make life so enjoyable, which you only have time to really appreciate when suddenly it all stops. But it took time, didn't it? You know, it oh, wasn't yeah. yeah, no, it took, it did take time. That must be very confusing for you and the people around you. Like, I, I definitely hear that from various people about traumatic experiences where you kind of have that grieving process and people sort of they look after you when you're going through it and then they might forget that actually it's the three months after it that you really need the support because that's yeah, where because you're trying to land on your feet again and probably the and most vulnerable as well yeah, so yeah what you that, don't have that do you have any advice for people who might be going through this period of isolation thinking like well, by all accounts, I should be writing my fucking memoir right now. I should be doing that painting. I should be um, refurnishing that room. I always said I would. But yeah, I just no, I, I, I hear that. So the thing is, even now, you know, having had the experience I had in hospital during isolation now, there's still times like when I was in hospital where I feel frustrated and I feel useless and like I don't really know what's going on. And I think it's really about managing that as best as, as you can um, connect with people, uh, make plans. And just, I think, I think also just staying active, you know, when I was in hospital, it was, I couldn't go outside, but I would go for, once I could walk again, I would go for walks and do a certain amount of laps before bed. I really believe, yeah, the staying active and keeping moving. It's a very good way of, of processing your thoughts and your feelings. But the thing is, I also know that like that frustration, that feeling of uselessness, I will feel that again. And I think like acknowledging that and being kind and being patient with yourself is so important because you, yeah, you will, you will feel that way from time to time, but you just have to, you have to, to manage it as best you can. It's that kindness and that listening to yourself that really matters in situations like this because you need to be there with yourself through those feelings of frustration sadness we can be so critical of ourselves and be like you know i should be using this time to 
to be more productive. But the, the thing is, is, is we don't have the distraction of daily life keeping us away from those feelings. I feel like I've never been more appreciative of my friends until yes. like this time. I'm like, I don't care about being productive. I just want to see everyone and be around people yeah. like you who are so positive and I want to soak it all up. Yeah, it is. It's tough, isn't it? Being, being away from people. Mm. I think that's, that's one of the things I've found most difficult about this situation. So knowing what you know and having mm-hmm. been what you've been through, can you finish the sentence? I have infinite number of days left because every day is new and every day is is different and is an opportunity to grow and to change and i think no matter what situation the rest of the world is in from where you are from where you're sat you can do something about your own situation and continue to challenge yourself and learn and connect with people i I think there's there's so much opportunity in every day of, of life and and, and that's why I have an infinite amount of days left because as much as being in lockdown and isolation sucks, there's still so much we can do to improve our world and enrich our lives. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. That's okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Harness, Isolation Diaries. We are proud supporters of Rafiki Mwema and the Carly Ryan Foundation. To hear more about their amazing work, check out the show notes. Also, if you want to share with us what you've been up to during these really uncertain times, drop us an email at projectharness at gmail.com or message us on Instagram. We love receiving your voice notes. Cheers.